Earlier this year, I took a COVID test, like many of you have taken. And in order to fly on a plane, my results had to be negative. Now today, we're going to take a test, an even more important test than if you have COVID or not. It's the test of true religion. James calls it the test of the tongue. What does your tongue tell about you? What does it say about you? We're going to see in James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, that the main idea of this passage is that the office of elder isn't for every Christian, but every Christian must tame their tongue. I have four points to share with you. The first one's a warning. The middle two points are all about the tongue, and then the last one again is a warning. James actually begins chapter 3 with a warning for aspiring elders. Look at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Now, this is interesting because if any of you were at our prayer meeting on Monday, our Zoom prayer meeting, you would have heard one of our lay elders, Nissen, share about the role of a lay elder. And one of the things when Pastor Mark asked him, hey, how can we be praying for our lay elders? Nissen said, pray for more elders in the church. He said, actually, elders are gifts from Christ to the church. Pray for more. And then Mark asked me to pray at the end of the service, and actually I did pray for more elders for Covenant Hope Church. Now, the interesting thing then is that James seems to be saying that maybe there should be less men who aspire to the office of elder. And I think James is referring to the office of elder in this first verse not just to teaching in general, for a couple of different reasons. As you probably know, every Christian is called to teach. That's what Jesus said to us, his great commission, Matthew 28, 18, 18 through 20. Go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching, then, is part of the job description of every single Christian. If you're a Christian in this room, you're called to teach others about Jesus. But while every Christian teaches, not every Christian is a teacher. So if you actually look at that word teacher, the noun form in the New Testament, what you'll see is that it almost always refers to the office of elder. Paul actually prohibits women from teaching. Think of what I'm doing right now, preaching the gospel from the pulpit to the church in our gathering. That's what Paul's prohibition is about. It's not from teaching in general. It's from teaching in regards to the office or the role of elder. So it seems James is giving a warning for aspiring elders. But we have to ask, why does James begin with this warning? It's possible we don't know the situation exactly, but it seems maybe there were people seeking to be teachers without actually having the moral character required for the office. After all, James is going to focus so much on the self-control of the tongue 
in the remaining verses. So if you aspire to be an elder of Covenant Hope Church, then James' warning to you is, maybe you shouldn't. The elder's life merits the very office they hold. They have to meet the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They must be above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled. Now, whatever situation James is facing, he actually gives us his reason for the warning in verse 1. James says, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Elders will be judged more strictly. Are you sure you want to be an elder? Even as I say these words, I'm thinking about the fact that one day I'll be judged for this sermon and if I was faithful to God's Word. Jesus said, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And of course, the elders' ministry is tied directly to speaking. Therefore, elders are exposed to a greater danger of judgment. And so let me speak for just a moment to our current elders. Pastor Brian, I see you. I'm not sure. I see Pastor Frank in the back. And of course, Pastor Mark is in the U.S. And Pastor Shannel and Pastor Nissen, myself, we all, we bear a spiritual responsibility for the members of Covenant Hope Church. And we'll give an account on the last day to Jesus Christ. So brothers, we must keep a close watch on ourselves and on our teaching. And for you, Covenant Hope Church, you've actually been given the responsibility by Jesus Christ to choose your leaders, to choose your elders. Many, many may aspire to this office but you must let the qualifications of Scripture lead you as you consider who's going to shepherd your soul, not your personal preferences. Look to the Word. And let me also say thank you, Covenant Hope Church, because you don't just pick your leaders and then criticize them. I've seen time and time again you care for the elders. You know we have a difficult, even dangerous job and while we're leaders in the church, you know that we're also still sheep, just like you. So many of you reach out to us, and you ask us how you can be praying for us. I, I can think of specific examples this week of church members praying for me, and you encourage us in our ministry. So please, let me ask you, please keep praying for us. Please keep encouraging us to teach the Word and to also live the things that we teach. Now James slowly transitions from teachers to considering all Christians in verse 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. Everyone, including teachers, stumble and in all sorts of ways. But James actually narrows in on a particular way. James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, 
able also to bridle his whole body. If you can control your tongue, James says, then you can control your whole body. You're perfect. Or you could also say complete, mature. But we all know that words have a funny way of escaping our lips without careful consideration, don't we? Proverbs says, a fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Now, every Christian knows this to be true, either by personal experience, you've done it yourself, or by observation, you've seen it happen over and over again. James is saying, if you aspire to be an elder, if you don't have self-control, then maybe you shouldn't aspire to be an elder. And after this initial warning, James transitions to talking about the tongue. In verses 3 through 5, we see the power of the tongue. Three examples listed back to back in verses 3 through 5 of small objects with big power. Look at the first example in verse 3. It's the horse and the bit. My wife loves horses. I don't know if you knew that about her. She rode them growing up, and I particularly don't, I wouldn't say I love horses, but I do admire horses. They're beautiful creatures. They're powerful. Some even weigh 500 kg. They can run up to 88 kilometers per hour. They're incredible. And a tiny little bit, now a bit lays, weighs less than one kg, a tiny bit in the mouth of a horse controls the entire horse. That's a small object with a big power. The second example James gives us is the ship and the rudder in verse 4. Now, rudders, as you know, are bigger than bits, but ships are bigger than horses too. If you've ever been sailing, you know that if you don't have the rudder, you can't really determine where you're going. It's a small object with big power. And the last example, if you look at the end of verse 5, it's the forest and the spark. Now, a spark is smaller than a rudder and a bit, but a forest fire, of course, is bigger than a horse and a ship. It just takes one little discarded cigarette or a child playing with matches or an irresponsible campfire and an uncontrollable forest fire can devastate millions and millions of acres, even kill hundreds of people. Now, why does James give us these three examples of small objects with big power? If you look at the beginning of verse 5, Sandwich in the middle of these three examples is the tiny yet powerful tongue. James says the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue. Now this insight into the power of the tongue should change how we use our tongues. Now think for a second with how Jesus used his tongue. Jesus, of course, never stumbled in what he said. Can you imagine that for a second? He never had to say to somebody, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have said that. He never had a sinful slip of his tongue. 
So how did he use his tongue? Jesus used his tongue to encourage others. If you remember, he commended the Roman centurion for his faith. He empowered his disciples with promises like, I am with you always. Jesus even stopped winds and waves with his words. He spoke, and Lazarus rose out of the grave. He spoke, and demons fled. That's power. And of course, we also need to ask, how should we use our tongues? And as we think about that question, first let me share how you can't use it. Because some people actually say that, hey, Jesus spoke and Lazarus rose from the grave. You have the power to do the same thing. Or Jesus spoke and the winds and the waves stopped. You need to command creation to do what you want. They say you need to name it and claim it. Some false teachers in the Word of Faith movement teach that Jesus did all these things you can and you should too. If you listen to their teaching or if you hear them preach, you'll hear words like declare favor and blessing or rebuke cancer and disease. Now, one false teacher particularly, Kenneth Copeland, at the beginning of the coronavirus in April, he declared, I blow the wind of God on COVID. I'm not doing justice to his preaching, by the way. He said, you're destroyed forever. You'll never be back. Thank you, God. Let it happen. Cause it to happen. Actually, many Word of Faith teachers proclaim things like this at the beginning of coronavirus, and yet here we are months and months later, still in the midst of a global pandemic. The ironic part is they'll actually blame your lack of faith for what they've for the things they've said not coming into fruition. But we must know that God has not guaranteed that we can use our words this way. The power God's given you is actually better than what the false teachers promise. Here's one power you have with your tongue. You have the power to encourage. You have the power to encourage. There's many one another's in Scripture Some of them that don't appear are scold one another or humiliate one another or discourage one another. You want to know one that will appear. Here's 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. It's not neutral. Encouragement isn't hard to read. Encouragement is tangible. It's real. It's obvious. You know, one brother that particularly encourages me in the church is Ian Isidario. Many of you know Ian. I can't tell if he's here right now. I can't see. Ian, are you with us tonight? No, he's not here. So I can talk about him all I want. He'll never know. Um, He often texts me after I teach, after I preach, and he encourages me with words about what he's learned about God through my teaching. Then Ian asks me how he can be praying for me. You know, as I was preparing this message, I looked back through Ian and I's text messages on Thursday, and guess what? I was encouraged just reading them. And it's hard not to notice Ian when I'm preaching, of course, when he's not here. Uh, That's different. But when I'm preaching, if I'm preaching Christ, Ian is over there nodding his head in agreement. It's not neutral. 
It's not hard to read. It's encouragement. Another example is we need to build each other up. Paul says, another one another, build one another up. Now each of us, as you know, we face our own difficulties, our own suffering, our own pain, our own sin. But the Bible says that we're not alone. Christians use their words to build one another up. Now you've actually never met someone who doesn't need more encouragement in their life. You've never met someone who doesn't need to be built up more in Jesus Christ. So the next time you're reading your Bible, maybe tomorrow morning, pick one verse. Pray and say, Lord, give me one verse that I could encourage a brother or sister with today. Or pray and ask God, Lord, today would you show me evidence of your grace in the life of another church member? And then ask for courage to go share that with them. Or just listen to the power of these words. You can share these with others. I am thankful to God that you're in my life. Or I love you, brother. I love you, sister. Let's let these be the words that are permeating our culture at Covenant Hope Church. And of course, we also don't need to just think of ourselves. We also need to think about our church as a whole. How should we as a church use our tongues together? People ask me sometimes, does your church have a choir? And I say, yes, yes, our church does have a choir. It's actually a, a big choir. It's, it's the whole church. Our whole church is a choir. And singing is all of our job. We don't just sing to God. Paul says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So think about it. Your brother or sister may have walked into this room tonight straggling in their faith, feeling defeated by sin. They may be prayed before they walked in the room, Lord, would you give me some encouragement? And then they heard you sing, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Could it be that God actually used your singing today as the answer to someone else's prayer? We have the power of singing. The tongue is powerful, friends. But as you know, our tongues are not often used for encouragement They're not often used for building one another up. In fact, we often use them for tearing down. In verse 6, James shifts from the power of the tongue to the perversion of the tongue. The perversion of the tongue. Our tongues possess great power, but we also have been provided a great opportunity for sin. And if you look at verse 6, it's packed with descriptions of the tongue. And none of them are good. James says the tongue's not just like a fire. The tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It may be set in the body, but James says it stains the whole body. It corrupts the whole person. And it doesn't just affect your life. James says 
it sets fire the entire course of life. It spreads like a wildfire. You can ruin your whole life and the lives of those around you with your tongue. And look at the end of verse 6. James actually tells us the source of this destructive fire. Where is it? The tongue is set on fire by hell. Who uses the tongue for wicked and evil purposes? Where do sins of the mouth come from? James says it's from hell. And Jesus actually taught this. He said, when Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, do you see how dangerous the tongue is? There's a cute little saying that goes, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Maybe you've said it before. James seems to be teaching the exact opposite. And you probably can think of many hurtful, sinful words that someone said to you years ago, even decades ago. They replay in your head over and over and over again. And it's likely that others probably have your hurtful, sinful words replaying in their heads over and over again. Friends, the tongue is destructive and dangerous. We need to think about our use of the tongue. Particularly, we need to think about how destructive the sin of gossip is. One brother, Ray Ortland, said the greatest threat to a typical church is not the adulterer, but the gossip. How can that be? Ray says it's because adulterers, they're confronted. They're encouraged to repent, but gossips often get a pass. Now, gossip is saying something hurtful that damages people and damages the community. It's saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. And gossip isn't actually limited to just lies. It's not limited to spreading false information. It could actually be spreading true things that are negative just because you get the pleasure of gossiping about someone else's hurts and heartaches. We all know it's devastating to discover that someone has publicly broadcasted what you thought was a private conversation. It's a betrayal of trust. And it's destructive to our own souls when we find out that others are sharing false rumors about us. They're circulating them to our friends, to our family. Friends, if gossip is present in our church, it only means that Satan is at work in our church. We need to be on guard. And if you look at the flip side of gossip, it's the sin of flattery. You may think that flattery is harmless. Maybe is there anything really sinister about a few over-the-top compliments? Proverbs 29 says, A person who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. Flattery is a lie. 
It's telling someone something nice about them that simply is not true. And the sad truth is much of what looks like encouragement in the church is actually flattery in disguise. Do you tell people nice things about themselves so that they'll like you more? Flattery is false praise. It's manipulative. And it's actually dangerous for both parties. Of course, it's dangerous for the one doing it because they're basically bribing someone with their words. They're lying. It's also dangerous for the one receiving it because it may puff up their pride. And the only response to the sins of gossip and the sins of flattery in the church is repentance. Have you ever asked someone for forgiveness for flattery? or for gossip? Do you often ask others for forgiveness for the sinful words that you speak? Christians don't just repent one time when they become Christians. Christians live a life of repentance. Every day we must die to ourselves and crucify our tongues. You see, when gossip and flattery are at work, we know that Satan's at work in our church. But when confession and repentance are at work in a church, we know that Christ is at work in our church. After establishing the destructive potential of the tongue in verse 7, James is actually going to take things a step further. He brings the entire animal kingdom before us, Drawing our attention back to Genesis 1, think about where man was given dominion over the whole earth. Beast and bird, reptile and sea creature, all have been tamed by mankind. But, why does James tell us all that? He wants us to tell us about something that mankind hasn't tamed. What is it? It's the tongue. Friends, what does that mean? That means that the greatest problem that we face cannot be fixed by ourselves. You can't tame the tongue. It's not a problem you just face or I face. It's a problem for all of humanity. And if you're not a Christian, don't you know this to be true for yourself? Haven't you ever said things that you regret? Things that you wish you could take back? And then you've only done it again and again. You can't tame the tongue. And that's a problem because James later says the tongue is full of restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. Once again, he draws our attention back to Genesis. Think of a snake slithering full of lethal poison. Psalm 140 verse 3 says that evildoers make their tongues as sharp as serpents, and the poison of vipers is on their lips. Now, the tongue can't be tamed. The tongue is evil. James says the last perversity of the tongue in verses 9 and 10. The tongue is also inconsistent. Look how we use our tongues. We bless God with our tongue. Then we turn and we curse God's image. Two opposites, but the same source. James here is arguing against doubleness. It's actually a theme of the letter. If you remember back to chapter 1, 
verse 8. James says there's a double-minded man. He asks God for wisdom, but he actually doubts that he'll get it. In chapter 4, verse 8, James will say the double-minded man, he wants to be a friend of God, but he also wants to be a friend of the world. Blessing and cursing are opposites. How can they come from the same source? Now notice, remember what Jesus told his followers. He didn't say to bless God and curse your brother. Jesus said, bless those who curse you. We've learned from James again and again that how we treat our neighbor, how we treat our brothers and sisters is actually just a reflection of what we believe about God. You might sing praises to God on Saturday, but if you curse your colleagues at work on Sunday, you're guilty of a double tongue. So it's only fitting that after describing the tongue to us, James ends this section with another warning. It's a warning for double-tongued Christians. Look at verse 10. My brothers, these things ought not be so. James doesn't say, brothers, don't do these things. He doesn't say, brothers, stop doing these things. He's not simply interested in morality, just being better. Neither does James say, brothers, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Everyone does it. You're, you're forgiven. Look what James says. He says, these things ought not to be so. We shouldn't be like this. James says we shouldn't be like this, of course, because we're a new creation. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. No man has the power to tame the tongue, but Christians have had their tongues tamed by Jesus Christ. James said we're all made in the image of God. He said the reason we're to use our tongues is to bless God and our brothers and sisters. But as we all know, instead of being fountains of encouragement, our tongues were fires of hell. We could tame lions. We could tame bears and the fiercest creatures on earth, but we couldn't tame that little piece of flesh between our teeth. And of course, we all know that the tongue isn't the problem. We shouldn't just cut out our tongues and be done with them. Jesus said the real problem is our hearts. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what did God do? He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, that perfect man who came down from heaven. He was a teacher, but he never stumbled in what he said. In fact, he never stumbled at all. Peter said he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins of the tongue. He took on God's curse so we could receive the blessing of forgiveness. He loosened the chains of our bondage to sin, destroying the fairy fires of hell. And Jesus rose from the grave. No power could keep him there. And do you remember when he ascended? Back to the Father 
We've been studying the book of Acts. You remember the day of Pentecost. A fire came down from heaven and descended upon the people of God. It wasn't a fire of hell. It was the fire of the Holy Spirit. And in the first act of new creation, what happened? God's people used their tongues to declare the mighty works of God. This is what it looks like when your tongue's tamed by Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I know you've been a victim of slander. You've been a victim of gossip, rumors, flattery, lies. Even people maybe have cursed you. You felt the evil of an untamed tongue. But, my friend, you've also been a perpetrator. The greatest problem is not the words that have been spoken to you. It's the words that have come from your own heart. And it's God's word of judgment against you. He'll hold you accountable for every sinful slip of the tongue. Friends, your, your lips are unclean. You need washing by the blood of Jesus Christ. You need the forgiveness of sins that's only found in Jesus Christ. Would you repent today? You can have the forgiveness of sins and the freedom of a tamed tongue. And as Christians, we respond to the good news of the gospel by using our tongues for encouragement, not for flattery. We use our tongues for building others up, not tearing them down with gossip. We sing. That's one of the things we do as Christians. We don't slander. We bless others. We don't curse. And because our tongues have been tamed, we repent of every sinful use of our tongues. We repent of being double-tongued. If you look at those last two verses of this section, verses 11 and 12, you'll see four examples. James is hammering his point home that Christians and double-tongued speech are incompatible. Look at verse 11. He says, does a spring produce fresh and salt water? We all know the answer is no. Does a fig tree produce olives? Does a grapevine produce figs? Does a salt pond produce fresh water? Our neighbors at the Hopeville, they actually planted a cucumber plant months ago. And they texted us a couple weeks ago. They said the, the cucumber plant bore fruit. Guess what it produced? It's a cucumber. It didn't produce pineapples. Have you ever wondered about that? Why do cucumber plants not produce pineapples? Now, the simple answer is because God made them that way. That's how God made them. And James' point is simple. He's saying that God's made us a new creation, so we produce the fruit of new creation. Bad things produce bad things. Critical speech comes from a critical spirit. Gossip does not come from the godly. And like last week, we learned that works reveal our faith. Our tongues really reveal who we really are. The office of elder, friends, is not for every Christian. But every Christian has a tamed 
tongue. And one day soon, oh friends, Jesus is coming back. We'll not be plagued by any sins of the tongue anymore. When he returns, we'll only be able to bless. We'll never be able to curse. But until then, by the grace of Jesus Christ, we tame our tongues. Not always, but more and more every day as God shapes us into the image of Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but consistently. Not fully, but by the power of the Holy Spirit faithfully. In this life, we will not attain perfection, but by God's grace, Christians will stumble into heaven as those declared righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, by the grace that's in Jesus Christ, would you help us? Help us tame our tongues and use them for encouragement, for building up, not for sin, not for slander, not for cursing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.